All right, good Saturday morning to the folks who are listening afterwards and to people who uh, might be joining us as, as we talk. Um, I'm going to do about 40 minutes of, of kind of free-form Q&A and, and rambles this morning, like uh, trying to do every Saturday. Um, sort of a, a topic that's bubbled up on Twitter from, from a game from last night, from Friday night, is something... Uh, uh, Mo DeKeel and I talked about on Nerdish. She wrote yesterday. Brad Roland and I talked about on, oh gee, Wednesday, Tuesday. I lose track of days of the week. Uh, about uh, sort of the the negative impact of bad shot selection on a team's defensive, what you want to call it, intensity, uh, give a shit factor, teamwork, whatever. Uh, specifically with reference to Trey Young, and this came up. Um, there was a play about just under two minutes left last night. Uh, Hawks at home leading Miami by four. Uh, Trey Young comes down, comes off sort of a, a, a desultory drag screen in, in, semi, in semi-transition. Uh, zero passes, pulls up from 28-32, way beyond the three-point arc uh, it, it, with, you know, 18-16 on the shot clock uh, and misses. And um, the question is, is that a good shot? And um, for a number of reasons, I would say no. First of all, um, time and score more than anything. Uh, you're up four with under two minutes left. For most of the game, pure points per shot is the, the sort of the metric you want to maximize because there's enough time left in the game that you don't really have to worry about situational stuff. Um, the, the, the increase in win probability is basically linear with the increase in scoring so you whatever the the theoretical points per shot is you maximize that and that's good uh when you get closer to the end of the game um win probability and points per shot can diverge a little bit um uh sometimes it's a question of of time on the clock sometimes it's a question of just scoring it all and i think this is getting right into the range like under two minutes four point game I don't think that's I ha, like I haven't run the numbers on this and it gets complicated because there's all the factors of timeouts and and fouls to give and stuff like that. Uh, I haven't run the numbers, but I don't think that there's actually that much of a of a of a discontinuity in like a team's win probability of being up six and up seven in that situation. But I think there's probably a pretty big jump between being up four and up a bucket. So that's a spot where just getting a good shot you can make almost maximizing field goal percentage or, or, or you know, probability of points uh, is, is perhaps more important than maximizing expected points. So even if that's theoretically a 35% shot, which is basically league average, um, it's, it, it's mediocre at best, and you add that you haven't given your offense any chance to get a good shot, you add that you haven't run any time off the clock when you're up in a two-position game when just at the time when the clock is starting to come into play. Um, and th- just from a, a pure math perspective, it's it becomes questionable. And then you add on the fact that um, as a teammate, you have to have a lot of equity to be able to take that shot and miss. Shot goes in, it's fine. Everyone celebrates. You know, you time out. Everyone jumps and chest bumps and stuff like that. That's fine. Uh, but it's really about what what happens if you take that shot and miss. How big is the shoulder slump? How how loudly are the other four guys in the court mumbling, mumbling this motherfucker if you take that shot and miss? And 
Um, there's maybe two guys in the league right now who I think have the equity with their teammates to do that, and that's Dame and Steph. Um, health, like healthy for both. And, you know, we're gonna talk about uh, talk about state Steph going through it, struggling a little bit in a minute, and Dame's obviously hurt and hasn't been right all year. But that sort of track record and of making that shot and team success um, allow you a little bit of leeway there. Um, you know. Dame has famously sent teams home on that shot. Uh, and, you know, the, the the shot to beat Oklahoma City is sort of, is that a good shot or not? Like, is Paul George right that that was a bad shot? That's sort of an unanswerable debate that's very complicated. And uh, I wrote about it in, in, in the book a little bit, but it's still, I still don't have a good answer for whether that shot was a good shot. What I can say is that especially the Hawks, you know, scuffling this year, as struggling as they've been this year, really, they've only been had one kind of sustained period of high-level play, which is the second half of last year. Um, I don't think Trey Young has the equity with his teammates, especially given his sort of his own defensive limitations and, shall we say, non-effort plays. Um, he hasn't, he, he hasn't, I don't think he has the equity, especially right now, to take that shot with his teammates and have it not be the kind of things like, oh man, we gotta, we gotta pick this up again. So, even over and above the questionable math of the shot, kind of the the less quantifiable but no less real team chemistry impact of that. I had a, I had a coach tweet at me this morning that that uh, two th- that the two things most destructive to team chemistry are bad help defense and bad shot selection. And you know Trey does one frequently with bad help defense, and that's a terrible shot in given time and score. And I would be as a teammate it's like, oh, you want to you want me to go play D and help on your guy now. Uh, you can see how that doing that over and over again would um, be a, be tough for team trust. Uh, I see some folks are, are piling in. You got any questions? Uh, raise your hand. Bring you up state on stage and ask them. Otherwise, I've gotten some some Twitter questions that I can go through as well. I'll, I mentioned Steph. Uh, he's kind of going through it, and that was one of the uh, one of, one of the questions I got that I that I liked. Um, was uh, let me let me see if I can find the exact question so I can I can give the uh, give credit to where it's due for, for, uh, let me see, do, 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 okay, uh, it's D Quinn, uh, D Quinn 1575 on Twitter asking yesterday, uh, at one point do you say think, at what point do you, you say think there's a change in how you value, value Curry versus saying it's random variance? 20 games is a small sample, at what point do you say, no, he is lower value? I think this is a really good question. Uh, Steph has been, after being kind of the the supposed runaway, and, and I thought uh, uh, justifiably like the one runaway front runner for MVP through the first, I don't know, six weeks, two months of the season, um, basically since the all-time three-point record came into view, uh, he's kind of been on the struggle bus a little bit. I mean, he's he's in possibly the most prolonged shooting slump of his career. Uh, it's kind of odd to talk about that this morning when he just hit a game winner last night um, uh, against Houston, um, which you know is still what he can, what he can always do. Uh, but it's a good question. It's like, are we, is this a decline in stuff? Is is he just playing badly? Uh, did we overvalue him early in the season? Is it? Uh, what do we think about that? Um, there's a number of different ways to to go about answering that question. I mean, uh, one thing you can you can look at is uh, in terms of. Okay, his, his shooting is falling off. Do we think his shooting talent has declined? Um, 
we have tools to do that 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 go some part of the way. Uh, you know, I, I talked to, to Costa Medvedovsky uh, last week about Darko, uh, and Darko kind of has a, uh, a, a, a Bayesian method of of trying to estimate a player's you know kind of real time estimate of a player's quote unquote three point shooting talent. And according to to to, uh, to that model, like over the last I don't know number of games, like. The, the estimate of his of his you know of his three point talent has dropped from kind of the mid forties to just above forty and there's a number of reasons why that that could be um, I think some of it is just is sort of the the sequencing and timing of it as well as the recency um, given that three point percentage tends to rise over the course of a season uh, the fact that he started the season off on fire and has d- dropped off since at a time when, um, from a modeling perspective, you would expect to see age-related decline. Uh, he's almost like uh, steering into the skid. And so it's like, oh, well, he's, his three-point percentage should be going up, uh, but he's old, so we're, we're, it's a time we're going to expect some, uh, some skill and talent decline. So it's almost, it's almost double-counting the, the, the drop in his shooting from early in the year and saying, well, he's... he's He's, he's getting old because this it actually should he started the season well and he should be getting better um, but it, it, it's gone the other way so he's declining um, the flip side of that is that that um, there's a, there's an expression from soccer that uh, uh, you know uh, form is ter- is is temporary class is forever um, and you know class is, is sort of British for talent so um, and I think there's something to that as well. I mean, he's he's not playing well. I think it's fair to ask if there's some degree of kind of fatigue in there. Um, he's been asked to do a lot, whole lot and like an, a, 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 an extremely high amount. And, um, you know, the difference between a guy who's 6'3", uh, carrying an off- uh, just an absurd offensive burden, and a guy who's, you know, either, you know, built like a tank like LeBron or Giannis or... 611 and can get a reasonable shot just by sort of raising up and shooting like KD. I mean I think it's it's just it is harder for Steph to get shots than it is for some of those other players. Harder for him to get the marginal attempts that can push him into high 30s usage and having to do that over a whole season is wearying. Um especially as, you know, he's a player who uh the the book is, you know, a little bit of physicality off the ball and that's and that especially when you're taking those hits from better players i think that can uh sap a player's legs a little bit and almost the victim of his own success he was so good early in the year that his i think his teammates uh and we we saw this kind of starting in the the, the sort of the the uh, three-point chase is they became almost too deferential um you know jordan pool or juan, Cust- uh, juan toscano anderson excuse me uh, would would get the ball and instead of trying to make a play themselves, which you know at times they they, they have been able to, especially Jordan Poole, it's like oh let's get get the ball back to a Steph Draymond two two man uh, Steph Draymond two man game, and they'll they'll sort it out for us and um, that can work, but it's just again you're just you're logging a lot of miles on a player who isn't getting younger and just asking him to do more and more. Um, you know, for some of the, their best wins over this time have been kind of when they've gotten explosions from other players. Uh, there was one game, I think it was the Christmas Day game, or right around then when, uh, like, the Otto Porter, for example, was 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 the big 
the big the big driver in in them them closing a game well. So all of that is to say that like you know he's he's maybe underperforming because he's tired and have been asked to do too much, or it's right plus throw some random variance in there. Um, at the same time, uh, that counts too. Um, it's very tempting to say that the the player's real level is one thing if you just take out all the parts where he plays bad. And really, when we examine a player, you, you count all of it, um, the, the the good and the bad. Now, maybe you make exceptions for when a player is uh, genuinely hurt, injured, limited, but kind of a player going through a stretch where they're fatigued or overworked, um, that to me is just sort of part of the normal bit of it. And if a player can't carry a high 30s usage, and most players can't, carry a high 30s usage without wearing down like uh you don't get to just count the parts where, where he's fresh in the season and examine well look how efficient he was on this this high you know this this, this exorbitant usage rate um so all of that is kind of a non-answer but yeah you do worry um i think you know going from the year at the um forefront of the nvp conversation i think um, if, if the rest of the season looks more like the last couple of weeks, um, there's, there's like, is he even in the first team all NBA discussion? And I think that's legitimate. Um, I was talking to, uh, Eric name about his, uh, his all-star, uh, votes. Um, uh, and we were talking about, you know, uh, who should the starting West conference guards be? And, you know, he was like, okay, Steph has to be one. Should the other one be Chris Paul or John Morant? And like, I'm not saying I am ready to go there yet, but I think we're close to being able to make the argument that based on not who we think is the better player or who we'd rather have going into the playoffs, but based on this season, we can at least have the discussion that it, that of those three, Steph might be the one who, who should be on the outside looking in of, of a starting spot, not of an all-star spot. He's clearly an all-star, deservedly. Um, again, I'm not sure I'm... I'm ready to go there yet, but it's uh, it's something you at least have to think about now. So that's I think uh, in contrast to um, you know Nikola Jokic, who has just kind of continued plowing on with fairly ridiculous stat lines. Um, last night, even though even though they lost, he had a, he had like uh, 26, 14, and 12. I want to say on like 16 shot attempts and zero turnovers. Like that's it's, it's bonkers. Um, I I I just I wish I hope Jamal Murray comes back in not too long and we really get to see a run with the with the you know uh, Jokic Murray Aaron Gordon um, Nuggets like MPJ would be nice but he's almost a luxury for for that team especially if they kind of have some of their other role guys healthy like you know Will Barton Monty Morris. Uh, everyone's favorite rookie, Bones Highland, um, continues to be good. So, uh, 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 D. Quinn, thank you for that question. Um, let me see. Another one I got. Uh, this is one that comes up from a longtime uh, follower. Uh, Ron in the Key asked, Who is my personal most unbated player of the past 40 years? And do you think stars support that or any fandom in there? Um, his, his, his suggestions are AI. Marcus Johnson shouts to Marcus. Um, Scotty Pippen, uh, Kevin Johnson. Um, 
uh, like my answer for consistently with this has been uh, Scotty Pippen. I think he is. Uh, I think he's quite comfortably the most underrated star of at least the modern era or the semi, like the the, the Jordan and post era. Um, he has a strong claim to be the best wing defender of all time and was a genuine MVP candidate. Like, he, always, he was always just a second fiddle to Jordan. 1994, he was a legit, should have been, I can make an argument, he should have been the MVP in that, that, first, that, that first season of, that one full season of Jordan's first retirement. Um, wasn't always the greatest shot creator for himself, but did everything else so well. Um, almost a precursor to, to Kevin, uh, Kevin Garnett, though had a, obviously a lot more with the ball in his hands, even if he didn't have the, the defensive size and, and probably didn't make the defensive impact that, you know, a, a an interior defender like, like, uh, Garnett could, but I think Scottie Pippen, I think he is, he is, um, has a strong argument to be like a top 25 player of all time. And I don't think he's ever, ever really, really discussed in, in, in that way. Um, do, do, do had uh, one more good one and I lost it, of course. Oh, here's a really good one. Um, this, this, this sort of came up again on Twitter earlier this week. Uh, Mark Wilson at Zarnell on Twitter asked, uh, cleaning the glass has half court play context, net, net ratings. What are your thoughts on this versus normal net rating when it comes to projecting playoff success? Um, I don't know, but um, yes, I think that that's a good a, a good thing to note uh, for playoff success in that teams that are um, dependent on transition might be the teams that tend to struggle offensively in the postseason. Um, right now, the big candidate for that is is Memphis, uh, who have been a both a mediocre half court offensive team in terms of efficiency and a mediocre. Um, transition team in terms of efficiency, but they basically are tied for first in the league in their frequency of of playing on the fast break. So, given that there's about a, depending on the team, there's a twenty thirty point, you know, uh, increase in 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 offensive rating from half court to transition uh, possessions. Um, you know, being at the moving more more transitions from. Uh, uh, more more possessions from transition to um, from half court to to transition uh, is a is just a huge benefit. Even if your your efficiency in each of those buckets is kind of mediocre, it's a it's a statistical concept uh, known as Simpson's paradox, where kind of um, the the uh, kind of the the observed value of of uh, of two subsets uh, can sort of mislead you on the, the overall value um, of, of the population based on like kind of the mix of, of how much you're drawing from each bucket. Um, I I want some other cleaning the glass stuff that I think is really, is really useful is, is, and um, I think, you know, Ben's site is one of the top three kind of must haves um, for if, if you're going to really, be dug in on on statistical analysis of, of the NBA season. One of the things I, I really like that that he's that he's done a, a great job of is his uh, um, speaking of transition offense is his points plus um, um, formulation. And that's you know we have okay team has scored points in transition they they get out on the fast break this much 
uh, it sort of gets lost, like, what they're adding. Um, you know, we see a team scored 19 points in transition. That sounds good. Um, how many times do they get in transition to do that? Uh, and, and more pertinently, like, it's not like those are extra possessions. They were going to get the ball all 19 of those, all, all 10 of those possessions um, anyway. So you kind of have to wonder how much extra did they get by, by scoring those 19 points in transition, by getting out in 10 times in transition over their half-court play. And that's where uh, Ben's points plus formulas come in. It's basically like looks at, and I forget off the top of my head, whether it looks at a league baseline or a team's baseline uh, for half-court possessions and then you know factors in how often they play in transition and how well they score when they do there. So you kind of, um, Memphis, for example, is, I think, uh, plus three something which means that their overall offensive rating is bumped up three points or so uh, based on the amount of time they, they get off in transition. Now, pretty much every team in the league will have a positive value for their points plus. Um, but, you know, you can see that, you know, the, the median is probably in the one something. So if, if Memphis is, is 3.5, is, is, is two points per hundred over the league average, over the league median in, uh, in, in that, that means they're getting two extra points of offensive rating overall on the season, which in effect translates to give or take five wins. So that's a, that's a, a pretty a good snapshot way of, of, uh, of just identifying how dangerous a team is in transition. Um, however, for a team like Memphis that is poor, has been poor in the half court, um, it's also sort of a cause of worry for um, what they might look like in the postseason, um, which all of these things are going to be weird this year. Um, just, I think that the regular season sample this year is uh, at this point, at least kind of messed up. This is something I'm, I'm writing on next week. At the athletic is just kind of looking at how weird or how unreliable some of kind of our, our normal indicators might be based on, um, sort of the lineup weirdness we've seen over the last, as we're, as we're kind of coming out of the, the um, hardship exception era, it would seem. Um, one of the things I like to look at is, is a team's performance against top-tier opposition. I think that's a, uh, a more reliable, or at least an, a co-reliable indicator, sort of overall margin of victory, is specifically how do they perform against... Uh, against, you know, the give or take top eight or ten teams, basically the 50-plus uh, win teams. How have they performed uh, in that sample? And something I found is I think there's only been one title winner ever that hasn't won at least 40% of their games, and that was the 2006 Heat, I believe, um, uh, that, that hasn't won at least uh, 40%. Uh, but actually, it's not true. The Rockets championship might also, the second Rockets championship, might uh, might fall into that also, but that's that's a team that um, shows how a, a kind of a large size midseason trade is one of the main um, situations where you kind of throw out the full season numbers. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is teams that haven't won at least forty percent of their games versus uh, like those that 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 mini league of the of the top eight ten teams in the league, um, and I use just for for. Um, convenience sake rather than trying to identify which teams were the contenders just like teams that have won 50 games or on a 50 win plus pace um 
However, this season, like you're, you know, you see the uh, a given team throws out a lineup, and it's some guy who was in the G League a week ago is starting and playing 35 minutes because they have four hardship exception guys because they have, you know, all their top players in 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 you know the protocols. Now, that's the, you get that over the course of a full season. Sometimes, uh, you know, late games. I remember the. Uh, I don't know. If, I think it was the second, second or third to last game of the regular season. Uh, my last year of the Bucks when we won sixty games, and um, we we're playing in Atlanta, and we'd already like wrapped up a bunch of stuff. And uh, Tim Frazier, who was our third point guard, rarely played, uh, played the entire game. It was an over. He went fifty-three minutes, and we ended up losing on a on a Trey Young kind of floater that bled into the basket at the buzzer in overtime, uh, which was a bummer. But we didn't play any of our guys. Um, that would have looked like a great win for Atlanta this year if you say, oh, they beat Milwaukee. Um, except, you know, none of our guys played. And that and that happens, you know, typically late in the season. Maybe occasionally a team will be banged up and rest some guys on a back-to-back. Uh, you remember, I don't know, eight, ten, eight years ago or so, um, Pop got fined a pretty big amount for resting a bunch of guys on a... Uh, on a uh, on a back to back in a in a TNT nationally televised game that was uh, I think it was against the Heat if I remember correctly and then their then their backups almost won the game anyway which was which was kind of funny after all the um, the, the 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 crying about it um, but so that that thing happens occasionally I think that especially over kind of the half season sample that we have it's happened a lot more this year and happened sort of unpredictably so i i'm for for next week i am look going back and looking at like if there are teams that have sort of benefited more or less uh in those sort of matchups by catching the not real version or the the um sub-optimized versions of teams um and again you always get that guys miss games but i think it's been um of a much larger degree this year than than we've ever seen before um which kind of is just one way where like this season stats are just going to be a little bit discombobulated um, in a, in a different way than, than last year's. I think the game environment is more quote unquote normal than it was last year, but the competitive environment is, is a little different. Um, you know, the, the, it's come up a lot about the league wide three point percentages at like a, you know, a, a at or near kind of 20 year lows. And, um, while last year was at sort of an all-time high, especially in the the fanless games, um, you know, maybe it's the ball, maybe it's something else. I kind of want to look and see if it's if it's the impact of just a, or it can be attributed to some of the impact of a lot of of kind of quadruple A players taking, um, you know, it's an expression from baseball if you're not familiar, where a guy who's who's maybe too good for the minor leagues but not quite good enough for the major leagues, which is probably where a lot of kind of the, the two-way and, and hardship uh, call-up guys who are getting actual minutes, they, they fall into. It's like the best guys in the G League who probably shouldn't be getting NBA minutes, but are because they're getting pressed into it. So that's a, you know, maybe a slightly lower talent level, and maybe that's, I can easily see how that would kind of drag league-wide shooting down just a little bit uh, on, on its own. Um, cool. Uh, I see a couple of you in, in uh in the room, uh, please. If you got a, if you got a question, fire away. Or otherwise, I can continue filibustering. Um, James, James got a question. Thanks, James. Um, uh, how you doing? 
Hell, good, you? Doing well, doing well. I've been What's enjoying it? your show for the past couple weeks, and um, I want to know, do you think that anybody's ever had, as a rookie, besides LeBron, the winning impact that Evan Mobley has had on the Cavs, and, and would that translate to him winning Rookie of the Year? Oh, so that's, that's sort of two questions there. One, I think he's he's he is the front runner. Um, there's some debate over whether there is a debate. Um, Scotty Barnes might be. Yeah, might Scotty be, Barnes has been really. Yeah, yeah, might be. He might be worth a discussion. Um, uh, Kate uh, has actually been not terrible since you know since basically his first couple weeks of play. He he looked like he was in training camp because it was his training camp. Um, it's pretty unusual for a for a player to um, the, actually the you know the only one the, the only player in kind of recent years I could think of to to have this have that kind of impact on a good team was Jason Tatum. Um, yeah, who, uh, part it's just it's unusual for a a uh, a rookie a, a rookie to both be good good enough to to be impactful right away and be yeah. on a, a good team. Um, yeah. So, like, like Tatum showing up for an already pretty good Celtics team was sort of the residue of, of kind of some of the past really good trades they'd made. Um, for the Cavs, it's more of kind of a, wow, where, where'd they come from? And this guy's really good. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a really good question. I, I, there's maybe, I can tell you that there's maybe one player a year who, who in his rookie year makes a meaningfully positive contribution to a playoff team. Yeah. On average. And, and I have another person that, like, to keep an eye on. Sure. I think that in year two, uh, Davion Mitchell, point guard out of Baylor, plays for the Kings. I think that he's going to be really going to have a breakout season next year. If he has to uh, has to show he can shoot to NBA. Right yeah. Is, is the big thing for him. Um, but, I mean, his obviously his, his on-ball defense is already pretty strong. It's just he um, to kind of – Go beyond kind of a, a situational kind of uh, um, poor man's Caruso kind of role. He does yeah. have to be able to give a little more on offense. Thanks a lot, James. I uh, appreciate the question. I'm going to bring have my, a director day. you too. I'm going to bring you Yang up here and and probably get out of here after that. Hi, Seth. I was just trying to mess with my. Uh, thank you, thank you. Um, I, sure. I got a question um, about Russell, Russell Westbrook. If that's okay. Um, oh boy! <laughs> I, I know you're trying to. I know you're trying to wrap up the show, but uh, you know, if you give me a quick answer. I, I'll appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so um, I, you know, when when the Lakers were putting together the team uh, this off season, uh, it was reported that LeBron James. Um, you know, I don't know if recruit was a strong word, but they had that famous kind of like a dinner at his house, right? Where they had to mm-hmm. talk about hey, joining the Lakers. And uh, this is kind of my question and my point. Okay. So uh, I noticed that with like NBA superstar players, they have a certain blind spot towards Russell Westbrook. And I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? So if you, if you ask like any average NBA fan um, in the last two or three years, they would say that Russell Westbrook is on the decline and that he's not really like a winning player, or whatever that means, right? Like he just doesn't seem to do the things that would help sure. him win a game. But why do you think that like the superstars, like the elite, the, the most intelligent, you know, basketball players like LeBron James, why do you think they don't see that blind spot? Oh, why don't they? They don't see that very obvious truth, whereas like the average fan who's not even nearly as intelligent as the James can see a very obvious. 
so that's a thank, that's a really good question, and this is um, I think there's a couple things going on here. One is sort of a field of view. Um, you know, for as much basketball, like a lot of a lot of NBA superstars are are basketball junkies and watch a ton, but at the same time, they're also really busy, like getting ready and playing in games and traveling and doing stuff like that. So, um, like I think the the sort of the the informed like league pass hardcore fan that you're kind of describing, they probably have a have a much better survey of the league as a whole. Um, at least at any one time than, than like a star player might and a star player or a coach might. I mean, you see this in coaching, like coaches always, one of the, the great drawbacks of the coaches GM is, Oh man, he had a good game against us. We should trade for him. Um, it's just because your, your field of view is so narrowly focused on your own games. Um, so I think that's part of it now. Uh, and that means that your opinion of a player can be pretty sticky based on, Oh, he was really good for a long time. And, and you don't, necessarily update that as quickly as you might um as as the player starts to fall off and i you know russ isn't the only player this happened to i think you know players uh opinions of carmelo like being like the bucket getting star um persisted for longer than that player existed um and i think that the other thing that that, that goes on is um, this is this is something that that I would say to, about both players and coaches is um, they are better at identifying who is good at difficult things than they are at valuing those difficult things in terms of of winning games. So there are things that that Russ can physically do that other players can't do. I mean, you know, there's not a ton of players who can who can still who can come down the lane and launch from the dotted circle and dunk on Rudy Gobert. Um, Russ can. Uh, but how often does he do it? Uh, you know, not many players can get their team to play in transition as much as Russ can. Now, do they are are they particularly efficient in transition at this point uh, with with him kind of doing that and maybe taking some ill advised pull up jumpers? Maybe not. But like the, you can see that impact. You can you you uh, and this this is maybe more true for kind of the isolation bucket getter type. Um, you know, the Carmelo type is, is like, that's a really hard skill. Like most guys can't do that. Um, but you have to do that at a really high level for it to actually be valuable. And so when guys start to drop off a little bit, it's, uh, it's maybe not perceptible to, you know, you only see a guy a couple times a year. Um, it's sort of, to, to use a baseball analogy, it's, you know, um, you would, you would never be able to tell just by, just what, if you were watching and not, didn't have a stat book in front of you or something the difference between a 275 and a 300 hitter because that's that's like a base hit every two weeks and you would just you would you would never perceive that as a difference uh but that's kind of a pretty big difference in kind of uh you know a, a three, like a 275 hitter is, is average and a 300 hitter is pretty good um so but you would never see that at, so a guy who is like you know can get like you know score at like a 48 percent clip in isolation that's that's pretty good, pretty valuable. Um, a lot of teams can use that. That drops to forty four percent, and it's it's for a good team. That's it, that's maybe more like floor raising than ceiling raising. Terrible. It drops to forty two, and it's now kind of just meh. Um, but you would have a hard time seeing that just over the course of a couple games, and so the fact that it still kind of looks the same, even if it's going in. Uh, slightly less often, 
I think that has a lot to do with kind of the the, the how how reps can be stickier than than game. I think we see this like just sort of all over, um, even with with um, with with dedicated uh, viewers, um, with much more so on defense, where kind of re- the reputation um, can outlast the the ability by a couple of years. Uh, defensive reputation is actually one of those things. It's kind of a the 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 reputation is kind of a trailing indicator. I think I think it takes takes the league about a year, year and a half, two years to think. Oh, this guy's good, uh, and then when he declines, it takes another you know year, year and a half, two years to like Avery Bradley is still a good defender. He's not as good as he was. You know, Trevor Trevor Aries and stuff like that. Um, but it's still you know it's still like oh he's locked down, um, and the difference between you know, locked down and pretty good is, you know, in any skill, pretty, uh, um, can be pretty big at sort of a championship level. So I, does, does that answer your question? Oh man, it's, you know what, I have so much to say, but I don't want to obviously uh, take up your whole show, you know, but uh, amazing answer. I agree with uh, a lot of what you said. Um, speaking of my very last point about the uh, yeah. defensive reputation, um, and I agree with you about that because with this defense, we still don't have a really uh, solid metric to say, oh, this person is this kind of defender with like a number so we can kind of quantify it. And I think yeah. uh, about the reputation, right? I, f- I feel, do you, uh, this is just uh, my question because I don't have, I don't know the answer to my question. Um, but based on your observations, uh, how do you feel about Gobert? Do you think he's, he's on the decline now or he's still one of the elite kind of like rim protectors in the NBA? Uh, so he's clearly one of the elite. He's still one of the elite rim protectors in the NBA. Um, this is sort of the almost the the inverse of you know I don't know if you were on earlier when I was talking about Steph Curry maybe you know being fatigued from being asked to do too much. Um, you know, stop me if you've heard this from me before, but uh, the Jazz perimeter defenders really asked Rudy Gobert to do too much and. You know, I think that, that there's some fatigue and I think um, fair to say some kind of frustration uh, on his part from, well, you're just turning guys loose and letting him get free runs at me like 18 times a game or whatever. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't said that. I'm, I'm making 18 up as a number. Uh, but, I, you know, he's like, do I have to do everything? Um, and I have some sympathy to that. So I don't know. It's 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 I mean, for. A lot of the the top line metrics, he certainly looks as good as he ever has. Um, it's it's kind of just hard to judge him because their perimeter defense is so poor. Um, and, and you know, uh, Royce O'Neal hasn't hasn't been as good this year as he's been in the past. And I always thought he was slightly overrated as a defender. Um, he sort of benefited from uh, being compared to. Uh, Bojan Bogdanovic and, and Joe Ingles as a perimeter stopper, which, you know, made him look a lot better um, just by comparison. I think he's good but not great and probably overmatched against most big wings, like elite big wings. Uh, but he just hasn't been as good this year. And then everyone else, aside from Mike Conley, is kind of actively bad on the ball. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, 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 uh, is is he showing a, a few signs? Maybe, but it's it's really hard to differentiate that from kind of the fatigue and frustration factor. That's essentially like a, a, a somewhat of a mirror image of kind of, of Steph being asked to do too much all season and, and kind of wearing down and not shooting as well. Um, that's a non-answer, but that's, that's sort of how I'm. No, it's it. a great, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. And um, 
uh, just a follow-up. I, I, I don't want to ask too many questions, of course, but uh, just a quick follow-up to that. Um, do you think, like, in the next, just say, five to ten years, uh, there's going to be some kind of, like, um, you know, metric or some kind of a statistic that will more accurately and objectively measure, like, defensive? You know, like in baseball, we have these, like, weird sure. stats, like W, OBA, and all this kind of weird stats that I don't even understand anymore as a baseball fan. You know, OPS+. plus. I have no idea what that means, right. to be honest with you. Uh, do you think they'll be like that for like a defensive oh, that, metrics? That's, that's, sure. No, that's a great question. How about this? Uh, um, I'm I'm try. I I have to get out of here today. <laughs> but how about uh, come? How about come on next Saturday and we, and I'll we'll go as long as you want on that question. <gasps> okay, that's a, that's okay. Question. You know what? I love it. I love yeah. it. You know what? Uh, thank you for uh, giving me so much time. And you had a great show sure. today. Thank you. Thank you. Th- uh, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, I am going to wrap up now and thank people for listening. Um, I believe next show is Monday, and I've got the, uh, I've got uh, the the the, uh, the 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 arch trolls of, of uh, that are Samus Fandiari and, and Andy Lou from uh, uh, of, of Warriors fan fame coming on. We're gonna and we're gonna talk more about Steph and the Dubs. I believe that's who I have coming up on Monday. I've got uh, I've got a few people lined up next week. Got them on Monday. Jake Fisher on Tuesday. Um, Allison Lucan, who is uh, a hockey data storyteller, who is both one of my favorite people in the world, but also uh, one of the best at crafting narratives using data. And then um, former Kings analyst Chris Pickard is coming on on Thursday. I think that's what I have lined up for this week. I could be wrong, um, but that's from memory. So anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, Talk to you all again on Monday.